This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you could get an answer to some of the questions in this case that still haunt you, what, what do you wish could be answered definitively for you to feel good about this case? Uh, God, there's so many. How much time do you have? It's it's still an active case. It's a death row case. So someone's life is on the line. And so really, it's likely the most important hypnosis case in the country at this time. Welcome to Killer Questions. I'm your host, Darren Karp. And today we're talking about the murder of Elizabeth Betty Black. Let's get right into this case. On January 29, 1998, William Black leaves his home in Farmer's Branch, Texas at 6.30 in the morning to go to work. He returns three hours later to find his wife, Betty, shot to death in their living room. Now, police arrive on the scene and find the house completely ransacked, leading them to believe Betty was killed in a burglary gone bad. According to official court documents, the Black son, Gary, is a drug dealer who is known to keep large sums of money in his parents' home. Now, the Blacks' next-door neighbor, Jill, saw two men drive up to the home just after William left work. Jill gives descriptions of the two men and the car they drove to tall, thin white men with long hair in a brightly colored Volkswagen Beetle. Police identify the driver as Richard Childs, a man the Blacks' daughter-in-law, Jackie, had been dating while their son Gary was in prison. By piecing together Richard's movements before the murder, authorities conclude that the second man is likely Charles Don Flores. Richard and Charles were together all night and into the morning of the murder, buying drugs and getting high. But there is a huge problem with neighbor Jill's eyewitness testimony. Charles Don Flores is a big Hispanic guy with short cropped hair. 
So kind of the opposite of what her description of the two men are, right? Now, 13 months later, that's right, 13 months, over a year after the murder and after going through a forensic hypnosis session, Jill testifies that she saw Charles in her neighbor's driveway the morning of the murder. And get this, this is the only non-circumstantial piece of evidence the prosecution has against Charles Don Flores. But it is enough, unfortunately, for a jury to convict him. Charles is currently on death row in a Texas prison, desperately, desperately trying to appeal his case. I have so many questions about this case, as you can imagine. How are police initially so sure Charles was the second man at the Blacks' home when he looked nothing like the man described by the eyewitness? Did Jill's hypnosis session really help her unlock memories of the man she'd seen? Was Jill even telling the truth about her memory coming back? Or was she trying to just help the police put away the man she believed had killed her neighbors? On this episode of Killer Questions, I'm going to be pouring over these questions and many, many more with someone who has lost a lot of sleep over this case. Lauren McGahee is a journalist with the Dallas Morning News. Lauren has done extensive reporting with hypnotic investigation court cases in the state of Texas. Lauren, Thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thanks for having me on to discuss this case. First, tell me, what piqued your interest in this case? Uh, Like, where did you first hear about it? Uh, Well, it's probably the most prominent case in Texas and maybe even in the country currently that involves hypnosis being used by police officers in a criminal investigation. Um, It's still an active case. It's a death row case. So someone's life is on the line. And the hypnosis in the case was central to the prosecution um, being able to ultimately secure a conviction uh, against Mr. Flores. So, so fascinating, Lauren. I honestly can't wait to get into this. Let's first lay out some of the backstory here. Betty and her husband, Bill, are immigrants from Scotland who built their house in 1961 when the block was an empty, grassy patch of land. Bill works in construction, and together they raise two kids and four grandkids. Betty Black is described as a bubbly and happy person by her neighbor. Betty and William Black's son, Gary, is a well-known drug dealer in their suburban Texas community. Now, in January 1998, Gary is in prison on drug charges. While he is incarcerated, his wife Jackie and their two children are living with his parents. And get this, Gary stashes two boxes in his parents' bedroom closet containing roughly $39,000. I mean, that's no small sum of money, people. I would take that in a heartbeat and straight up cash. Now, even though Jackie's living with Gary's parents, she starts dating another drug dealer named Richard Childs. And yes, you guessed it. She tells Richard all about the stash of cash in her in-law's closet. Okay, so now in the very early hours of January 29th, Jackie, Richard, and his friend Charles Don Flores get high on meth, then drive out to meet another dealer named Terry Plunk. And they have a deal in place to buy a quarter pound of meth. That's a lot of meth. Okay, now at the buy site, Charles weighs the drugs on his own scale and claims the weight is a quarter ounce too light. Weight measurements matter, people, because that depends on how much they're paying. Now, Terry Plunk makes up the difference and the sale goes through. The three then return to Charles's house, where he weighs the meth again, but there's a problem. Charles states that they were shorted a full quarter pound this time, and now claims the drug buy was supposed to be for a half pound. 
So a lot of weight measurements just not adding up here. And now at this, Charles becomes belligerently upset and starts gathering up his guns, presumably to go back to Terry's house to rectify the situation. Jackie herself is a meth user and on probation for drug use. She's worried that Charles will retaliate in a way that will put her at risk of going back to jail. In an attempt to calm Charles down and hopefully prevent him from doing anything that will get the police involved, Jackie offers to buy the quarter pound of meth from him for $3,900. He'll get his money back. She just needs a day to get it from her in-law's house. Charles and Richard agree and drop Jackie off at home around 6.30 in the morning. Okay, what happens next is... A little sussy, a little unclear. Richard drives a very distinctive pink and purple Volkswagen Beetle. Now, we know that around 6.45 a.m., the Volkswagen Beetle pulls up to the driveway of the Blacks' house. The car contains two male passengers. Several of the neighbors notice the car, but no one takes note pretty much beyond that. They're all busy with their mornings. Plus, it's still dark at 6.45 a.m. The sun won't be fully up for another 45 minutes. Okay, but we know that there are two men inside because of one eyewitness, the Black's next-door neighbor, Jill. It's important to note that she sees these men across her bedroom, out her bedroom window, across her yard, and across the Black's driveway. Remember, it's still dark outside. Three hours later, around 9.30 a.m., William Black returns home from work. When he walks into his house, he finds both his wife, Betty, and his Doberman pincher, Santana, shot dead. Investigators determine Betty has been shot with a 38 caliber bullet, while they believe Santana may have been killed with a 44 caliber. So we're talking two different guns here right now. Investigators also find fragments of potatoes spread throughout the room. Think of this as kind of a soundproofing or silencer, if you will. Now, as they continue to search the home, authorities find the house to be in complete disarray. Holes are punched in the walls, bathroom fixtures are ripped out, and a medicine cabinet has been pulled down. It appears to detectives that the killers were searching for something hidden in the walls. The news of Betty's murder travels fast through the small Texas town, and by that evening, Jackie's ex-husband Doug finds out about the killing and the fact that a Volkswagen Beetle had been spotted outside the Blacks' home just before the attack took place. Doug drives to the police station that very night and reports that the car belongs to Richard Childs. This puts Richard and by association Charles at the top of the suspect list. On February 4th, that's six days after Betty's murder, Jill, the neighbor, describes to police what she witnessed. Okay, are you ready for this? This is kind of a very big, important part. Listen to this. She states that she saw two tall, skinny white men with long, wavy hair drive up and park their yellow Volkswagen Beetle into the Black's driveway. You got that? Two tall, skinny, white men with long, wavy hair. I'm thinking surfer bros, if you will. Okay, so I got to point this out right from the get-go. Jill isn't the most reliable witness here. She says the car was yellow when everyone else who have claimed to have seen it say it was bright purple and pink. Jill has shown several photo lineups containing pictures of both Richard and Charles. She's able to identify Richard as the driver of the VW in two separate photo lineups, but she doesn't pick Charles's photo out as the passenger. Now, at this time, Jill requests to undergo hypnosis in the hopes the procedure will help relax her enough to better recall the events of that morning. 
Now, before we get into the use of hypnosis and all of my burning questions surrounding that, Lauren, I wanted to ask you, did you expect this case to unfold the way it did when you were first kind of hearing about it? Well, no case unfolds the way you think it's going to, (laughs) frankly. I mean, life is complicated. Um, Memory is fallible. Um, People lie. And so there's always a lot of twists and turns in these kinds of cases. But this one um, in particular has so many moving pieces. It has so many conflicting narratives from different people with different points of view and different uh, desires uh, for the outcome. And so it is it is fairly complex um, from from my perspective. And, you know, it's still ongoing, so we have to be sensitive towards that. But do you still find yourself interested in some of these unanswered questions in this case? I mean, does this case obviously still haunt you? You have to keep a certain uh, modicum of level-headedness and and distance from it, or else you'll get sucked into it, and it'll be the only thing you do for the rest of your life. But, you know, if you ask Mr. Flores, uh, I mean, he's been fighting for his innocence for more than 20 years. Um, And there's still an opening for him to potentially, uh, you know, if not see his death sentence commuted, argue for his innocence, which is what he's seeking to do. So you're right. It's active. Um, Someone's life hangs in the balance and there's a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, that's, I think, what grips me the most. First off, like I'm a big, big, big supporter of the Innocence Project and I don't believe in capital punishment. So right off the bat, this case is going to pique my interest, but also, You know, I believe in the criminal justice system and I believe in a fair trial. So I want to get I want to start off with a little bit of the hypnosis with all of this. Let's go back to kind of the beginning. So right off the bat, it just strikes me as so fucking weird that this was something that, you know, she requested uh, versus the police. For me, if I was a witness, I don't know if I'd ever ask to be hypnotized. That just seems like kind of a left field request. We actually don't know why the Black's neighbor requested the hypnosis session. Um, it is reflected in the in the record that she asked. We, we just don't know the steps before she actually ended up in that room. What we do know is that she was told that it may help her relax and recover memories or, or enhance her recall of her memory and that she ultimately agreed. And do you know of any prior cases that had used this effectively or is this kind of the first of its kind here? There have been many cases over the years that have led to police recovering more evidence after a hypnosis session, but some of those cases ended up being wrongful convictions. Um, And some of those cases, you know, the individuals who were convicted never ended up successfully challenging it. The core problem from skeptics of hypnosis is there's no way to prove whether hypnosis works. Unless there's corroborating evidence, we just don't know whether that memory recall is accurate or not. After this hypnosis session, Jill's description of the two men does not change, and she continues to recall the passenger as a tall, thin, white man with long, dark hair, And after the session, the forensic hypnotist who conducts the procedure informs Jill that the hypnosis might help her remember more details about the event as time goes on. Lauren, this is such a loaded statement to say to someone, in my opinion. I mean, how could you even tell the difference between a memory that changed due to hypnosis and one that just changed because we get older and life happens and time occurs? So I think this is a good 
point to talk about the pitfalls of uh, using hypnosis in a criminal investigation. So we think of it in, in, you know, American culture as a truth serum that always works. And, you know, someone waves a, a clock in front of your face and snaps their fingers and, you know, whatever, right? But in actuality, memory is very malleable. Um, memory changes every time you recall a memory, it can actually shift and morph and change. And you get you can get further and further away from the trueness of that core memory. Um, if you ask scientists who study memory, they actually say that you could have a traumatic episode. Everyone's brain works differently, first off. And you could have a traumatic thing happen to you and only truly encode or lock in core memory of a certain aspect of it. If you're attacked, you may remember the gun, what the gun looked like, but not the attacker's face or vice versa. It's just whatever your brain locks onto in that moment. Some people have great recall immediately. Some people have almost no recall at all. And contrary to what police who use hypnosis tell victims and witnesses of crimes uh, and what we know from the medical community, they're telling these people that they can recall things verbatim and have their recall enhanced, actually unlock memories that were locked away, which is not generally how everyone's brain works. the documentary film like on TV what we're gonna do is 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 when we get you into a deep state of hypnosis we're gonna take you into a theater it's gonna be your own private theater um, and basically what it is, is you're gonna be seeing the documentary and you're gonna be seeing the film of the events that occurred on that day on that morning okay um, I'm gonna ask you to verbalize I'm gonna ask you to talk uh, to tell me what it is that you're seeing okay um, and, and basically, that's all we're going to do is we're just going to get you into a very relaxed state and uh, to help you recall the things that you've seen that day. Okay. okay. So simply telling someone that they're going to remember things better is already exposing them to influence. And that is at the core. Hypnosis is an influential tool. It is meant to influence someone to do some something, right? I want to stop smoking. I want to lose weight, those kind of things. It's meant to influence. And so any kind of suggestion in hypnosis can be taken very seriously by the person who believes they're in their chance. Well, right. It almost seems like this artificial confidence that they're giving the participant. An arrest warrant for Charles Don Flores is issued four months after Betty Black's murder on May 1st, 1998. But when police try to take Charles into custody, he leads them on a high-speed chase that ends in a head-on collision in a residential area. He subsequently must be subdued by physical force to be apprehended. Certainly, this does not make him look good in this case, I will say, but it also does not imply guilt. It just doesn't make him look good. Charles' trial began in March of 1999, 13 months after the crime took place, at which time the prosecution is unable to produce a single shred of forensic evidence proving that Charles was, in fact, at the Blacks' home at the time of the murder. There's no DNA at the crime scene, no fingerprints, no blood. After 13 months, Jill is called to give eyewitness testimony as to what she saw on the morning of Betty's death. 
We talk about this in the true crime world all the time, but this is one of the major problems with eyewitness testimony. We're all human beings. We're all fallible. I can barely remember what I did this morning, but we're supposed to stake an entire person's life on what this one woman remembers from one morning over a year ago? How can this even be fucking possible? The defense objects to Jill's testimony, stating that their belief that her hypnotically refreshed testimony is untrustworthy. The court agrees to conduct a zany hearing. Now, this is a hearing specifically to determine whether or not the evidence provided by someone who has undergone hypnosis is trustworthy enough to be presented in court. In order for the evidence to be admissible, the court has to find that the hypnosis didn't alter the witness's memories and that the defense team is still properly able to conduct cross-examination. The court decides to postpone Jill's testimony until after the zany hearing. And immediately after this postponement, Jill pulls the prosecutor aside and tells him that Charles, who was also in the courtroom at the time, is in fact the passenger she saw outside the Black's house on the morning of the murder. This was literally the first time, the first time in 13 fucking months, Jill positively identified Charles. Remember that whole thin white man, wavy hair? That's not what Charles looks like. Now, remember, she had seen his photo in lineups right after the murder, and she had even created a composite sketch that looked nothing like Charles Don Flores. But keep in mind, in the months between the murder and the trial, Charles' images appeared numerous times in the media in relation to this case. So it could have seeped into her brain somehow. Could you give us some general insight as to what makes a post-hypnotic witness reliable or unreliable? All of the problems with using this method in criminal investigations, you know, the the forensic hypnotists or investigative hypnotists that use it really truly do believe in it. And I I I've met these men, mostly men. Hmm. They are they are true believers. Um, you know, I I believe that they believe in it. I believe that they're not throwing around a tool that they believe that they're misusing in the moment. Um, the problem is, is that the world of the way that we think of memory has changed a lot over the years and their techniques largely have not. And right. so fighting for something that is you know, arguably outdated um, and has been banned in many states for being problematic in criminal investigations, they they feel this connection to it. They feel like they don't want to let go. Um but it's it's something that is becoming less popular because it has been shown to be so fraught. And also on the witness side, when you have something traumatic happen to you or someone you care about, you want to help. You want to remember. Of course. And so there's, there is a, a, a phenomenon where someone who believes they recall something under hypnosis and then afterwards has that memory cemented in their mind and it perhaps helps the police uncover a lead, um, that's not coming from a place where, you know, uh, some of these people are, are believe they're actively lying. They, you know, it's called the honest liar phenomenon where they truly do believe that their memory was real and the right. fact that the memory recall under hypnosis then helped the police potentially catch someone that did something bad feels very validating and it can be very therapeutic. And so again, it's both the power of the technique and the problem of the technique kind of wrapped up in one. I think that's actually 
so accurate. I mean, there's so much nuance to a case. I mean, if you can, we, we have cases, we've discussed cases where people can falsely confess to something, you know, that they didn't do, that they are saying they're guilty for, that they didn't do, whether because they're under duress or for whatever reason. And so the sort of the opposite can be true, too, that we're just kind of wanting to help. And so this need to help, this need to feel a part of something can also falsely affect someone's testimony. I want to go to the Zany hearing for a minute. First of all, could you give us some general insight as to what makes a post-hypnotic witness reliable or unreliable? How do we know what's reliable or not? What's important about Zany is, although the court said, hey, if you're going to use hypnosis, you should check off all these boxes, it's rarely enforced. It's rarely mm-hmm. that a judge will look at the 10 Zany factors and say, hey, you're missing two. We're going to throw out this testimony. Or they may interpret the Zany factors differently than another judge. And so it's very, as as is in the court system in the U.S., it's so much up into the hands of the judge and how the judge feels about that particular witness and the hypnosis. And so the Zany factors are more like guidelines. They're not hard and fast rules that ensure that people are are playing by the book. But even having these guidelines and having these hearings, whether or not judges or whatever are, are relying on them, but the fact that those exist must mean that there's a lot of general uncertainty about the reliability of this, of hypnotism and the reliability of witnesses who have undergone hypnosis, right? I mean, that kind of says something to me that it's clearly not hard evidence. Well, I mean, the fact that a number of other states, about half of the states have either banned hypnotically refreshed testimony or severely cracked down on its use, you know, is telling. Um, And the zany factors have not been updated and there has not been an update to the way that the state deals with hypnosis and criminal investigations since zany, which is, you know, nearly as old as I am. There's no zany rule for when the session needs to happen. So there's been cases where it happened in the days after, as in the Flores case, or years, decades. There's no statute of limitations on this? No. I I mean, there's no, even the rules that are in place aren't, aren't enforced hard and fast. So there's the, really the only rules in place are the, the individual doing the hypnotism must be certified under state certification. Texas is, as far as I could tell, the only state that actually has a official certification process for law enforcement hypnotists. And if it's not recorded, then there's going to be a huge problem. But other than that, I've found that the other zany factors are more malleable or Mm. sometimes dismissed altogether. To be fair, even if it is recorded, it seems like there could be a lot of unreliability there. Okay, so what is revealed at Jill Zaney hearing? The court learns that the hypnosis session was conducted by certified investigative hypnotist Officer Rowan Cerna and that the entire session was taped by another police officer. Now, Officer Cerna had never hypnotized anyone before, but had taken a course in forensic hypnosis two years earlier in 1996. Cerna began the session by asking Jill what she remembered from the morning of the murder, to which Jill replied, quote, The first thing I remember is when I looked out the window and I saw a car pulled up into the driveway. I remember it was a VW bug, and I remember seeing two guys get out, end quote. Jill then goes on to describe the passenger as a thin white man with long hair and a medium build. As Officer Cerna conducted the interview, he suggests nothing, provides no feedback, and avoids affirming any of Jill's recollections of the morning. 
Immediately after the hypnosis session, Jill is still unable to pick Charles out of a phono lineup. This is very key here. Now flash forward to 1999 and the Zany hearing. The state calls Dr. George Mount as an expert witness to comment on the procedure followed during Jill's hypnosis session. Dr. Mount has taught hypnosis for 20 years and has significant experience with forensic hypnosis. He has also evaluated hundreds of hypnosis sessions and even sat on the board that developed the exam officers are required to take in order to become a certified investigative hypnotist. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So he seems to have experience here. Dr. Mount reviews the tape of Jill's session and gives his expert opinion that the session was conducted with correct procedures. It allowed Jill to feel more relaxed without quote-unquote firming up any of her impressions of what she witnessed. During the hearing, Jill states that while she may have seen photos of Charles in the news in passing, she has not sought out his image, nor does she recall seeing his image in the media during the trial. Jill also states that she's now over 100% sure that she can identify Charles as the passenger of the Volkswagen. I want to unpack a little bit of the recap of Jill's session. The first issue that kind of jumps out at me is the fact that Officer Cerna had taken a course in hypnosis, but had never actually hypnotized anyone before his session with Jill. This sort of sounds like, I've done flight training courses on the ground, but I've never actually flown a plane. That's not what I want to hear when I'm midair. 
So like, is forensic hypnosis something that can be trained or taught only in a classroom? I'm kind of wondering here if you think it would have made a difference in the outcome of the session that Officer Cerna had no practical experience. So for you, Lauren, based on your expert knowledge, could you give our listeners some insight as to what happens when a witness undergoes hypnosis? What do we know kind of happens? The most common technique, which uh, the medical community continue, continues to think is very fraught when it comes to memory, is to uh, sit someone down in a chair, and then you're essentially taking them into what you hope they believe is a hypnotic trance, a, a very relaxed state. And in that state, the law enforcement officer will tell them that they can look up into a movie screen or a television screen and view their memory as though it's a recording, a recording that can be played, paused, rewound, zoomed in. And in that process, the law enforcement officer will ask the witness or the victim questions in an attempt to enhance that particular memory that is is lacking. They'll oftentimes tell them, and in this case, they also did, that they may remember things into days, weeks, or even potentially years in the future, that they may have better memory recall simply because they believed they were hypnotized. Um, And then the session ends. And as far as I've never been hypnotized, but as far as you know, the hypnotist isn't questioning the witness, you know, if they're like, oh, yeah, like. A brown house with blue shutters. They're not like, are you sure it wasn't a white house with green shutters? They're not questioning the witness, right? They're just kind of like letting them say whatever the fuck comes to their mind, right? They're not meant to be leading. However, if you watch the hypnosis session in the Flores case, the witness who saw the two men go into Betty Black's home previously before the se- the session, she said they were two white men with long hair, shoulder length right. hair. During the hypnosis session, she repeated that memory. She said there were two men. She was asked specifically about their hair. She said again that they were two men with long hair. And the police officer who was doing the hypnotism asked her multiple times whether the men had short cropped hair. She said, no, they have long hair. And he he said, it's not short and cropped. Is it short and cropped? And she would repeat, no, it's long. That in and of itself is highly problematic. Here's the archival tape again with Jill being prompted to describe the man from the car that morning while under hypnosis. Just relax, feeling very easy, doing fine. And all the stress and tension. You simply melt away, allowing you to slip deeper and deeper into the pencils. And I want you now just to uh, to visualize his face. Can you concentrate on his hair? Concentrate and focus on his hair. Can you tell me what his hair looks like? Long. Long. Is his hair short? Is it shaved? Is there anything about the hair that stands out to you? I see it to his shoulders. Just relax, take a deep breath. Even in that moment, if if the witness stuck to her memory, stuck to her previous statements, 13 months later, 
that witness pointed out a man with short cropped hair in the courtroom and said, that's the man I saw going into Betty Black's house. Like, I just don't understand how this is, like, admissible in court. This is so frustrating. It just seems like this is the flimsiest fucking thing. It's also important to remember that I'd want to make this very clear. In the trial, Officer Serna said, going into that session with the witness, he said he did not know who Charles Don Flores was. He didn't know what he looked like. He had never seen a picture of him. He had been interacting with the officers, however, who the day before, according to the notes in the police file, had been told who Charles Don Flores was and had retrieved a photograph of him. We we will never know. It's it's his word, right? So Cerna said right. he didn't see the photograph. He didn't know about Charles Don Flores. But it was only the day before the hypnosis session that the police investigating the crime figured out who this mysterious Charlie character was. That was the first day they actually identified who is Charlie. And so that was a breakthrough for them and one that was very important. And so the fact that it happened the day before the session and then Officer Cerna was asking whether the second man had close cropped hair, it raises questions. Before jury deliberation begins in the actual trial, the court reminds the jurors that one of the witnesses, Jill, has undergone hypnosis in an effort to refresh, restore, or improve her memory regarding the description of the men she'd seen at Betty's house on the morning of the murder. The court gives instruction that if the jury has any reasonable doubts as to the validity of Jill's post-hypnosis testimony, they should disregard it completely and not use it in their decision-making. The jury instruction will turn out to be hugely, hugely important down the line. The jury finds Charles guilty of capital murder of Betty Black. On April 1st, 1999, Charles is given a death sentence. A year later in 2000, Richard Childs pleads guilty to Betty's murder and is sentenced to 35 years in prison. Charles' defense appeals his conviction in 2000, 2001, and 2007, all on the grounds that the court should not have allowed Jill's testimony as it had failed to prove her statements were untainted by the hypnosis session. In its 2007 claim, the defense includes an affidavit written by an expert witness in psychology, Dr. Edward Geiselman. Dr. Geiselman includes in a statement that the hypnosis session may have been unduly suggestive because the hypnotist informed her that after hypnosis, quote, you might find yourself able to recall other things as time goes by, end quote. However, Charles' execution date is set for May 19th, 2016. Two weeks before Charles' execution date, the defense files a motion for stay of execution under Texas's new junk science writ. Now, this statute allows prisoners to challenge possible wrongful convictions by proving changes have occurred in the field of forensic science that substantially undermine the integrity of the evidence presented against them at trial. Now, as Jill is the only eyewitness, the decision to throw out her testimony has the potential to significantly impact the outcome of the case and perhaps save Charles's life. The court finds that the defense's claim is valid stays Charles's execution and orders that the case be brought back to trial to consider the defense's new information. This seems like good news, but the trial court hears the new evidence and recommended Charles's appeal be denied. In 2018, the Innocence Project, which I love so much, submits an amicus curiae brief on Charles's behalf. 
An amicus curiae brief is a document submitted by a party not affiliated with the case for the purpose of offering insight or expertise into the case. They are generally provided for cases that pertain to civil rights or other broad public interest issues. This kind of takes the bias out of a lot of these cases. In the 58-page brief, the Innocence Project discusses the fact that eyewitness testimony is known to be highly unreliable, contributing to 70% of the nearly 400 wrongful convictions that have been overturned due to DNA testing. That's massive. Now, the document goes on to posit that the time between Jill witnessing the car and its passengers and the trial, the fact that Jill saw Charles' mugshot in a lineup at the police station, although she was still unable to pick it out, people, and then likely saw it again on multiple occasions in the media, and the hypnotist's statement during the session that she may continue to remember more details as time went on, all could have contributed to her contaminating her memory and thus her testimony. The defense team attempts to take Charles's case to the U.S. Supreme Court in the hopes that they would rule on investigative hypnosis in the state of Texas. But in January of 2021, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Lauren, has your journalistic work in hypnotic investigation given you any insight as to how many inmates may have been incarcerated or convicted on the basis of hypnosis-assisted testimony? Uh, we've tried to pinpoint the number. Um, when we put out our investigation a couple of years ago, we had identified, uh, I believe it was about 75 cases where hypnosis was some kind of a factor in the investigation. And, you know, it varies whether it was the sole evidence or the strongest evidence or one of many things. Um, and that's just in Texas. Do we have a even rough estimate of how many of those inmates are currently on death row, even in just Texas? Of the 75, I believe it's four are on death row um, with varying degrees of whether the hypnosis was central to their case or not. Some of them, it was, you know, there were much stronger factors in the case, but hypnosis was used in at least the case of at least at least four people that we were able to identify who are on death row currently. This is so sad. Lauren, in your opinion, do you believe hypnotic testimony should be admissible in the court of law? Oh, come on. You know, I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm so I'm going to stay 100 feet away from that question. (laughs) Um, I will say about hypnosis, I'm not saying it can't work. Because right. everyone's memory works differently. the pro- And that's why some doctors still use it to encourage their patients to change behaviors, right? Or to relax them. The point is, we don't ever know whether it's really working. We don't ever know whether that, that memory is getting sharper or duller. And so you can make your own decision whether that amount of... Uh, of mystery to a technique makes it appropriate or not uh, to use in a criminal investigation. If you could get an answer to some of the questions in this case that still haunt you, what what do you wish could be answered definitively for you to feel good about this case, if you can? Uh, God, there's so many. How much time do you have? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the only uncontested facts in this case <laughs> are that two men went into Betty Black's home on the morning of January 29th and that one of those men was Richard Childs. That is the only thing that everyone can agree on and that Betty Black was murdered. 
I'm not here to argue that Charles John Flores is guilty or innocent. I don't believe that is the role of a journalist. That's not the question. Right. Yeah. The question is, was there enough evidence to convict Flores and then to allow him to be potentially put to death? I mean, there's no execution date right now, but that could come down the pipeline at any moment. What's lost in this case a lot is that there was a man convicted of being involved in Betty Black's death. That man is Richard Childs. He readily signed a paper that said he was involved in the murder of Betty Black. And he was never taken to trial because he made a deal with prosecutors. He was paroled within a month of Charles Don Flores's appeal being shot down. So Flores, who has always said that he wasn't involved in this, did not make a, a deal with prosecutors and got the death penalty. Richard Childs, who, who admitted to being involved in the murder, is already out. There's something there that is difficult to square. Um, yeah. And it's something that is lost repeatedly. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. I'm, I think for me, I it's it scares the living bejesus out of me for the lack of a better term here to think that my life is put on the line by the state for evidence that I, I'm not even sure we can call it evidence. And that's what's the kind of sad thing about this entire case. But Lauren, you are incredible and amazing. I hope that I have hypnotized you appropriately for the last hour. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I really appreciate Lauren. Well, thanks for having me on to discuss this case. At present, Charles has no execution date set, and his case is before the Court of Criminal Appeals, who are deciding whether he should be awarded a new trial. The defense team is constantly on the hunt for more information to help prove Charles' innocence. If he's not granted a retrial, he will unfortunately eventually be executed. We will obviously continue to keep an eye on any developments with this case and hope that in the end, justice will be served for both the Black family and, of course, for Charles Flores. And for you guys listening to the show... What are your killer questions for this case? You can message me on social media at Carpe Darren. And to continue the conversation, I am always willing to have it with you guys. I'm Darren Carp. Thanks for listening to Killer Questions. For even more true crime from ID, head to Discovery Plus. Go to discoveryplus.com slash killer questions to start your seven-day free trial today. That's discoveryplus.com slash killer questions. Terms apply. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.